Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. I'm Kwangu Liwewe, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. It's been five years since President Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe was toppled in a military coup in November 2017. His successor, Emerson Munangagwa, had fled Zimbabwe days before the coup in fear of his life, only to return and take the helm as Zimbabwe's second post-independence head of state. Munangagwa promised a new dawn for Zimbabweans who had been subjected to authoritarian rule and economic mismanagement for decades. Five years down the line, has Munangagwa delivered on his promises ahead of next year's general election? I'm joined today by Tsitsi Dangaremba, a Zimbabwean award-winning author, filmmaker, and feminist. Her work is rooted in the African experience with a special focus on Zimbabwe. Her 2020 Booker Prize shortlisted novel, This Mournable Boy, continues the story of Tambudzai, the protagonist of her first novel, Nervous Conditions, which won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize in 1989 and was also included in the BBC's top 100 books that shaped the world. Tsitsi is also the founding director of the Institute of Creative Arts for Progress in Africa Trust. On the 29th of September this year, Tsitsi was convicted for promoting public violence after her and her friend Julie Barnes took part in a peaceful protest calling for reforms, the release of jail journalists, and a better Zimbabwe for all. She was given a $110 fine and a suspended six-month jail sentence. She announced that she planned to appeal the verdict. Tsitsi, thank you for joining me on The Lead. Thank you, Kwangu. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the big political issues, I'd like to go back a bit and ask you about your career. You've worked on an astonishing range of genre. That's including plays, novels, essays, short stories, and of course, films. Which genre came first and how did it lead onto other forms of expression? Like most young people, Kwangu, I started off writing poetry. And from poetry, I graduated to drama for the stage because I realized that we didn't have that many plays that dealt with the current realities of Zimbabwe at that time. That was the 1980s. And from drama, I progressed to prose. My prose did not have immediate success. It was very difficult to find a publisher for a young black African voice, female for that matter. It was difficult within Zimbabwe and outside Zimbabwe. And so thinking that I would not have any career or impact with prose, I went to film school in Germany at the end of the 1980s. So what happens when you have an idea? Does it come linked to the form it'll take? Or is there a process of thinking it through? Do you like look at your character and think whether that character is going to appear in a novel or a movie? I used to think that way. I used to think, oh, this character or this idea would be perfect for the stage. It would be better for prose. But now I have to be more pragmatic because I've realized that it is still very difficult to raise resources for production in most of the areas. And so I'm concentrating on prose at the moment. My experience is that cinema is where prose was when I started writing four decades ago. So uh, a lot of reluctance to uh, resource the voices of African women. And um, 
I want to become more successful with my prose so that I have more impact on this advocacy for African women in cinema. So you mentioned that you started your career in the mid 80s and this was after Zimbabwe had gained independence. Have your motivations for writing changed over your career? My motivations have not changed at all. My motivation for writing was to bring people like me and the people that I saw around me and in my communities to the page, to the stage and to the screen. And that is still my motivation. Uh, I feel that this kind of reflection of oneself is a very important process, first of all, in indicating to people what areas they can celebrate about themselves and what areas might need attention. But I also feel that it builds social cohesion because it, it gives us narratives that we can talk about. And these are narratives that uh, are not individual or just uh, relate to a few people in a group. They are narratives that can be consumed and therefore discussed at a national level. Let's now take a look at the political landscape in Zimbabwe, and I'd like you to take a walk down memory lane and look at the events um, of November the 15th to the 21st. Just tell me about your personal experience with the coup. Where were you when you first heard about it? And what was going through your mind? I was in Senegal, and I remember being in Senegal around the 11th of November, 2017 and somebody posted a video on Twitter. And he posted a video of tanks moving from through a rural landscape. And he said, friends, I don't know what's going on, but look at all these tanks. They are all moving in one direction. Something is happening. I was busy with a script writing workshop at that time, and I wasn't in the country. And I didn't pay much attention to that. And not even the people in Zimbabwe paid much attention. So that went largely unnoticed. I then returned to Zimbabwe on the 13th or 14th of September. And that is when I saw that there was a military presence at the airport. That is something we had never had before. I still didn't link it up to that video of the tanks moving. However, I was not unduly alarmed because they were very friendly and they let me through and there seemed to be no threat whatsoever. But it was then the next day when the news came in that uh, uh, the late uh, uh, Wamugabe had been put under house arrest and uh, there were, he was to step down and the tanks were now in the city and that's when we understood that uh, a coup had taken place or was taking place at the moment. I did not see any indications of violence and so I was not very afraid in that respect but I was concerned about the, the constitutional implications, because once one begins to defy the constitution that separates the military from civilian government, then one is going down a very slippery slope. 
So that, that was my first reaction to the news that the coup was taking place. Now, there was a debate about whether it was a coup or not, wasn't there? Well, some people debated, but I think that that's what Zimbabweans do. A coup is, uh, occurs when the military take over uh, state power unconstitutionally. And that is what happened. So it was a coup. And of course, Zimbabweans will debate anything from here to heaven. But, but that doesn't mean that the definition has changed. We just love to talk as Zimbabweans. And yeah, and the, the other thing about the coup is that it very definitely was executed by the military. And uh, Zimbabweans are also very clever people. Some people like to call it intelligence. I like to call it cleverness because I believe that intelligence leads to positive outcomes, whereas cleverness leads to outcomes that are perhaps wanted outcomes, but they are not outcomes that lead to positive results for the most amount of people. And so when the army realized that there was an impasse, President Mugabe Belait had dug in. He was, a men he, he was under pressure to announce his resignation. And he read the paper, but did not announce his resignation. He just said, Asante sana, thank you very much. And um, there was talk about impeaching him. And then the other strategy was for the perpetrators of the coup to go on to uh, the national broadcasters and urge people to come out in, in, um, in support of what they were doing. And the late Mamugabe was very unpopular by that stage. One of the reasons why he was unpopular, in my opinion, is that Zimbabwean society is very misogynist and he was pushing his wife, Grace Mugabe, uh, into a position to be the next leader. Of course, that would have been a, a strategy devised by people in a particular camp who then thought that they would use her as a figurehead and, and be the power behind the throne, so to speak. So he was immensely unpopular. And the military took advantage of that by telling people to go out onto the street. They told people that they would order transport for them to transport them from their rural homes into the city centers and people should go out. I was convinced that people would not go out. They would just stay at home and let the military get on with whatever they were doing. Why did you think that? because I felt that people would be sensible enough to know that you cannot trust a, uh, an army that had its roots in a guerrilla movement that killed more black people than any other people during the liberation struggle. And their tactics were intentionally brutal to make examples of black people so that black people would not collaborate with the white colonialists. And um, I, I felt that people would remember that kind of brutality and understand that those were probably not the best people to usher in a new peaceful and prosperous era.
Okay, so Mugabe resigned on the 21st of November and the country was gripped with a sense of expectation and hope. But for others, it was actually fear and uncertainty. So we saw people from all walks of life, um, different races, backgrounds. They were marching in the streets alongside the army. Five years later, what's the mood like in Zimbabwe? Absolutely critical. It is dire. It is much worse than Mr. Mugabe's time. We had been told that one of the reasons for the coup was to remove criminals around the president, the president being the late Mr. Mugabe. Uh, when one looks at what is on the ground today, it seems as though the reason for the coup was to enable other criminals to prosecute actions like corruption, like neglect of the nation, uh, like um, uh, disposing of Zimbabwe's national resources at the expense of the people. So in my introduction, I talked about you being arrested uh, in July 2020 for taking part in a peaceful protest. After that, you appeared in court almost 30 times. Tell me about that experience and what did it teach you? In the very beginning, when we were arrested, um, we were told that we were going to go to jail without bail. We went. We were arrested on the 31st of July. On the 1st of August in the afternoon, it was a Saturday. We sat in a courtroom and we were told, you are going to jail. And then at the last minute, we had a reprieve and we were given bail. And the conditions were to report once a week and the fine. Um, I felt that that was reasonable. The court has a right to, uh, to go through due process. And I was convinced at that time that there was a possibility of a fair trial. I then was offered a fellowship at Stellenbosch University for 2021. And um, I had some illness in the family abroad. And so I applied for relaxation of my bail condition so that I could visit this family member and then take up my fellowship. And that was granted to me. And in granting that relaxation of my bail, um, I felt again that the court was being reasonable. Uh, I had also had to give up my passport, so I got my passport back. When I returned from the fellowship in the middle of 2021, the magistrate who had been on the case, who had uh, relaxed the conditions and who had said that the allegations were not even serious had been removed from the case. And there followed a series of magistrates until we got two women who I think um, uh, had very specific intentions, let me put it that way. Uh, the prosecutors, um, two prosecutors who had very specific intentions and a magistrate who, uh, in my opinion, changed from the first meeting to the second meeting. And so um, from that time on, it became clear that we were in a very difficult situation. Uh, for example, the only witnesses that the state could bring against us were the policemen who had been instructed to arrest us. They had no independent witness to say that we were doing anything uh, that constituted a breach of the peace. And um, 
we were also one of the things that was used to convict us is that the media engaged with us. So basically, the fact that the media was doing its work uh, uh, was criminalized. Um, and so there were many things like that that showed me that the outcome was unlikely to be favorable. I think in, the, in terms of uh, the way things happen in Zimbabwe, the fact that I was given a suspended sentence was in fact a favorable outcome because as we know, uh, many people go into pre-trial detention for days, weeks, even months. As we speak, Job Sikala has been in pre-trial detention for 150 days. Many, he was arrested along with many other people in around June or July. And uh, there were 17 of them associated with a particular case. Fortunately, uh, the other 16 have been released over the last uh, few days. One of them was released several weeks ago, and then over the last few days, the others. But he is still in jail. So uh, I am sure that uh, the, um, according to the powers that be, uh, a just and lenient sentence has been handed down to me and to Julie. You've just mentioned Job Sikala. He's in Chikurubi Maximum Prison, and he's been there since June for inciting unrest. And you've described the country as being in a dire and critical situation. In essence, would you say Zimbabwe is a police state? I would definitely say it is a military dictatorship, because once you have a coup, it is the military that have involved themselves in civilian government issues. And once they do that, they are unlikely to retreat. And the person who comes in uh, to govern is somebody who the military are comfortable with. In our case, we have President Mnangagwa, who was known to be very active uh, during the Matebeleland genocide. So that alone is not a positive signal for peace and progress in Zimbabwe. Um, it, it could have been a positive signal if the issues resulting from that genocide had been attended to with goodwill and if restorative justice had taken place, but that is not the case. Um, then what happened is that after the coup, the uh, SADAC and uh, the African Union did not react strongly. Although the African Union statutes state that coups are not tolerated because of the way the Zimbabweans manipulated the coup, getting people out into the streets to celebrate it, um, they were able to pretend it was not a coup. And I, I think that this ability to deny facts is something that works to Africa's detriment. I think it was up to the regional and continental bodies uh, to do the right thing and to go back to the original definition of a coup and not to say that if you get people out into the streets to kiss the soldiers, it is no longer a coup. So that has been problematic. Titi, you mentioned the African Union and SADC, and if we narrow in on SADC, its critics say it's a toothless big boys club that doesn't condemn each other. 
Now, if we look at issues like in South Africa, there's xenophobia. There are also indications in Zimbabwe that the country may implode ahead of next year's elections. Yet SADC remains mute. What's your comment on this? Yes, uh, generally, really, one wonders what SADC exists to do. I have no idea. As an artist uh, who has programs that are international in the region and on the continent, I have approached SADAC several times and have not even had a response when I have left uh, messages for for the person responsible for culture. So um, I do feel that SADAC is doing the region and Africa a disservice. I think it's important to remember that SADAC is composed of five countries that had uh, very bitter and brutal liberation struggles. And so this will have had an impact on the kind of governments that came into power and the perspective that these governments take. These liberation movements, as they still call themselves, continue to meet. Um, I can understand that if somebody has been in the bush for decades in very traumatizing conditions, that really has a profound effect on the psyche. But then that is something we need to start questioning. Do we have governments in five countries that are composed of such people? And if we do, how can we mitigate the, the effects of having such people in power? Let me take you back to the leadership in Zimbabwe, and I want you to describe for me what kind of leaders does Zimbabwe have and why do they behave like this? Do you think it's stemming from the liberation struggle? I do believe that the liberation struggle has a lot to do with the kind of leadership that we have. Uh, the liberation struggle itself was necessary because we had autocratic apartheid leadership in uh, Ian Smith's Rhodesia, uh, and it it had not been possible to come to a peaceful resolution of the race and uh, oppression issues that obtained during Ian Smith's apartheid time. And so people felt that they had to fight for their freedom, which they did. People who remained in the country were as much as part of the liberation struggle as people who went out because it was these people who risked their lives to give information, to give food, and to, to help the guerrillas to do what they needed to do. And so there is a feeling in the country now that those people who went out of the country, especially the elites of them, uh, feel that they did everything by themselves and therefore they are entitled to everything. Uh, uh, President Mnangagwa is on record saying so much as we, we are everything, we are the army, we are the police, we are the judiciary, we tell people where they can mine, we are the only party who can tell people where to build a road and so on. And so it does seem that uh, either that was the idea from the very beginning or the very traumatizing events of the war have led to that kind of dis dysfunctional thinking uh, as far as government is concerned. But what about the citizens? Um, basically, don't they enable this oppression? 
I mean, they've had to endure 37 years of Mugabe's rule and now five under Mnangagwa. After all, leaders do come from the people. So what is your take on the citizens of Zimbabwe? This is my argument, Kwango. And I say, at the end of the day, we have successive people coming into leadership positions and they all tend to end up behaving in the same way. So there must be something in the Zimbabwean population that is causing the leadership to function in that way. Because if it was just an aberration, we would see some different leaders doing different things. And indeed, in some cases, we do see that because there are many levels of leadership. And one of the levels of leadership is the chiefs. And uh, some of these chiefs really put their foot down. They refuse to have violence um, in, in their jurisdiction during elections. And they do do their, the best for their people. But these are very few and far between. And they also run a risk of reprisals for that kind of behavior. But that means that it is possible for Zimbabweans to choose to behave differently. There are individuals who refuse to take the handouts that ZANU-PF give uh, in exchange for, for that uh, tick in the voters' box. But they are few and far between. So generally, the attitude in Zimbabwe is, well, what can we do? This is how it is. We just have to find a way to manage. And I feel that this shows that the citizens do, do not have an idea of their own agency. They are not aware of why they were called out to support the coup. They were called out to support the coup because they are the ultimate power. With those millions in the street, it was possible to say to the region and to the international community, look, the Zimbabweans want this to happen. And that is an argument that is difficult to contend with. And so I think the citizens don't know their power. One of the reasons why they don't know their power is they know that if they had been doing something that the military was against, then the military would have turned against them also. And we saw this happen in 2018 when uh, there was an election to validate uh, President Mnangagwa's um, inauguration as president. And people were out on the streets demonstrating against the results and the army was unleashed on them. I remember seeing people in uh, videos of people in trucks with, with ba bandanas and scarves across their lower faces so that they couldn't be recognized uh, in camouflage. And these are the people who, who went into the streets and shot at people and killed at least six people. And so people understand that this army can do anything. And this understanding goes back to the liberation struggle where they did do anything. Anybody who cares to do, uh, dig into the history of the liberation struggle will find out about the horrors that the, the guerrillas inflicted on black citizens who they felt were a threat to them in some way. And so this has not changed. Uh, any black citizen who does not immediately comply is seen as a huge threat 
and is therefore uh, very much in danger of some kind of reprisal. Now, you've talked about the citizens as a whole, and I want us to zone into the youth. What role do you see them playing in the upcoming elections? I mean, we saw what happened in neighboring Zambia, where the youth vote ushered in a new government when they got fed up of Edgar Lungu's corrupt government. I think the Zimbabwean youth have the potential to play a critical role, but I think there are differences between Zambia and Zimbabwe. For example, Zambia did not go through a brutal liberation struggle. So Zambia does not have a generation of parents who are traumatized and terrified. And the Zambian youth have not heard of the kind of horrors and atrocities that were committed by both sides. But for uh, what is important for me is those atrocities that were committed by black guerrillas upon black people. So th they do not have that trauma. So I think they have a lot more psychological energy um, to be able to use the agency that they have. Meanwhile, Zimbabweans live with this nightmare. Everybody knows somebody in their family who was horribly killed or tortured by the guerrillas. That is just the way it is. Um, so there is that fear. Then secondly, Zambia might have had a corrupt government, but it did not have a military government. And definitely it didn't have a military government with a guerrilla background because guerrilla warfare is quite different from traditional warfare. So the situation is that Zimbabweans are afraid that if they go against the, the government, um, the military will retaliate. So that's one thing. Then the other thing is that the economic situation is so dire. Some people say it is mismanagement of the, of the economy. I don't think it's mismanagement of the economy. I think it's deliberate. I think it's deliberate to ensure that the only source of resource is the ZANU-PF party. And unless you align yourself with the ZANU-PF party, it will be very difficult for you to obtain the resources that, that you need in order to survive. Uh, some people call it incompetence. I think there is incompetence involved, but I do believe that if there had been good intentions from government with respect to the general citizenry of Zimbabwe, there would have been a learning process over 40 years. And we could see that, yes, we began there and now we are improving, people are learning. However, it's going the other way. Um, it is becoming more critical. And when they are given good advice from citizens about how to manage the currency, uh, they, they basically laugh in the citizens' faces. So I think all of these things are very discouraging to the youth. There is massive unemployment. Now think about going to vote. You have to get transport and you have to pay money. And most of the youth are unemployed. Uh, a few of them are having uh, two meals a day. Very few are having two meals a day. You have to have the energy to get up to do it. So I think that um, th this poverty is manipulated and it is a strategy uh, to ensure 
that people do not have the, the agency or cannot display the agency that is needed to go against them. Even then, there are many youth who are uh, um, really doing their part. And that is why we see so many youth being beaten up, being tortured and being put into jail. And this is uh, meant to be an example to other youth not to get involved. Those youth that we see uh, just moving freely, for example, marching and singing songs of war on videos on YouTube are Zanupiev youth, and they are the ones who are empowered and given the license to behave in that way. Siti, you've talked about the violent struggle for independence and then also the post-independence atrocities and the climate of fear generally in the country. Now, there's a cliche we hear ever so often that Zimbabweans are too peaceful to revolt. Or are they just plain scared? I don't know whether Zimbabweans are too peaceful to revolt. The Sisson Rhodes' BSAP uh, company, British South Africa company, put, sent up a column of what they called pioneers, the pioneer column in 1890. And they planted their flag in an area of Harare that is called Kopi in 1890. And the first act of resistance against them was already in 1893. So I do not think that Zimbabweans are too weak to revolt. I think that Zimbabweans have been so oppressed that they are no longer able to access the, the necessary agency. I think that if there were specific programs and the right kinds of people were empowered to engage with the citizenry, there would be a difference. What we tend to see happening is that um, people tend to think at a political level and think that the solution is political. Surely, the political solution is part of it. But if you have a political situation with people remaining the way they are, we will have the same kind of people entering these political institutions, and then we will have the same result. So really, the, the issue is Zimbabweans were never rehabilitated uh, from the years of colonization, from the liberation struggle, and the increasing in violence that has been inflicted on them by the government since then. And I think that is where we need to start, because there are Zimbabweans who are standing up. So we cannot say generally that Zimbabweans are too weak. I think we need to look at the reasons why Zimbabweans are not able to access and use their agency and begin to engage at that level. When one looks at Zimbabwe's population, uh, it stands at 15 million and the urban population accounts for 32%, while the rural is the larger bit of 68%. The rural area has also been considered as ZANU-PF's stronghold and their vote is very decisive in all the major polls. So describe to me the makeup of the rural voter and why they primarily support ZANU-PF. I think the rural voter primarily supports ZANU-PF because of the system that was put in place that I referred to uh, of the chiefs. The chiefs represent the pre-colonial traditional way of life where you had the head of a polity being the ultimate word. And uh, these 
heads of these polities were changed when the colonial people came and people who were loyal to the colonialists were put in place. And ZANU-PF has simply perpetuated that system. I understand that it's difficult to go back now. So much time has passed, a century and a half. Uh, so it's difficult to go back and to say who should be the rightful chief because even those families have been affected. But I think that uh, using the chiefs as a method of control is one reason. These chiefs get uh, many perks from the government. Um, so they will deploy people who will tell people in the rural areas, look, we have the voters' role, and we know exactly who is going to vote for who, and we will be able to sniff out the witches. This is uh, something that was actually said on social media. So people are intimidated. They are completely intimidated. Then there is the idea of, well, there's nothing in the country anyway. So what can we do? We are impoverished. We are uneducated. We are unhealthy. When we get ill, we often can't even get paracetamol at our clinics. We have to take our uh, women who are about to deliver babies to clinics in wheelbarrows on bumpy, dirty roads. So this does not really inspire self-confidence. So when an authority figure stands up and says, do this and I will give you two kilograms of rice and a bar of soap, the idea is, well, you know, we've got nothing and two kilograms of rice and a bar of soap is better than nothing. So I think the rural po populations are being manipulated into docility. Since Zimbabwe's elections are won or lost in rural areas, is it a done deal for the next election? I believe it's a done deal. I do not think that the Citizens Coalition have done enough or are able to do enough. The rural areas are more or less um, sealed off with ZANU-PF administrators in position. Uh, so it's very difficult for people to do as much work as they need to do. The other issue is that we have one broadcaster uh, that reaches the whole nation, and uh, it is euphemistically called a national broadcaster, but in fact it is a ZANU-PF broadcaster. Our constitution stipulates that the broadcaster should give equal time to all political parties, but of course they do not do that. They only give time to, to ZANU-PF. So um, there are so many ways that this vote and this electoral process can be manipulated. For example, another way is the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, which is meant to be independent, but which is staffed by people who are related in some way to the ZANU-PF party. Um, they make it very difficult for urban voters uh, to, to, to register to vote. Basically, they make sure that people who are um, sympathetic to the ruling party vote. They make sure that the rural population who can be manipulated vote. They, they do things like assist voters 
so that people do not go on their own, so that they know they are being supervised. There are many things that they do that, that uh, make it look as though any election that happens uh, under these conditions is sham and not a real election. It is a performance. Now, if the environment is not conducive for a free, fair and credible election, why should Zimbabweans even bother to vote? Because they should try to be courageous enough to vote according to their conviction. Now, there are many people who are convinced that ZANU-PF is the correct party, but there are many others who are not convinced. And we know that in the past, especially in the presidential election, uh, that uh, Mr Mugabe was defeated by Mr Changirai. We know, for example, that there are cases where an opposition party member has won, and when the Electoral Commission announced the results, they simply announced that the ZANU-PF incumbent has won. Then they say, sorry, um, the announcement is final, uh, and, and there are all these kinds of things. Uh, so... Um, one still has to take part in the process. One reason why one has to take part in the process is that the figures will tell us something. And also the fact of intimidation. These are stories that need to be known. If we all stay at home and don't vote, then people will not know that these things are happening. So we need to vote. And we also need to vote to acknowledge that it is a democratic practice, but we should we we need to make sure that it functions effectively. With this information, we can then start thinking about what to do, uh, even if it becomes a question of saying, look, uh, what we have in place at the moment is only a performance. Maybe we need to wait for a while and sit down and talk about how we are going to change things so that the next election is actually a democratic election that expresses the will of the people freely. Would a change of government alter the dynamics in the country? I mean, they've been facing these dynamics since independence in 1980. So if you have a new government, would it change those dynamics? No, I think because the structures are so entrenched, it would be very difficult for a government to undo some of the elitist practices and structures that have been put in place, not only by uh, the Zimbabwean military and political elites, but by their allies in other countries, which include China, uh, Belarusia, and so forth. So I think some kind of process would need to happen where these kinds of issues were put on the table so that solutions could be found. Um, again, I would like to say that I, the politics is one angle of it, but there is a lot more. And I think that all the other angles, the social, the economic, um, have to be put on the table together to be able to devise a roadmap towards a thriving democratic society. Yeah, but who would lead this process? That is something that uh, Zimbabweans, some Zimbabweans are talking about. We have very competent people who simply do not engage in politics because they understand uh, that uh, politics are quite rogue in Zimbabwe. But there are people who would be 
possibly available to lead such a, pro a process, which would be programmatic. It, it would not be a political uh, process. It would have to be a process that comes out of consensus that everybody agrees that, yes, we need this. And so let us put in technocrats who can lead the programs that are necessary to get us to the point where we can have the free and fair elections that express the will of a free people who know what is good for them. Does Zimbabwe need a national healing and reconciliation process other than the commission that already exists? We definitely need uh, some kind of healing and national reconciliation process. That would be one part of such a process. We do have um, a, an organ or a commission on national healing, but I do not see that they have done much. We, they were actually they actually said at one point that the Matabelelen genocide was just one of the matters. You know, how can a genocide just be one of the matters in a country? Surely a genocide has got to be uh, one of the priority. Um, but that also goes to show how little value that they put on uh, the, the, the killing of uh, numbers of people, of groups with whom they disagree with. So obviously this particular uh, uh, commission is dysfunctional. So what next for you, Tsitsi, and what next for Zimbabwe under ZANU-PF? I mean, from what you've explained, post-2017 was not a new dawn, but a false one. What next is not very clear at the moment. With this conviction, uh, those people who support ZANU-PF clearly have earmarked me as a troublemaker. And um, I wouldn't like to give them any opportunity to express any more of that opinion that I'm a troublemaker. So I need to consider what my steps will be. I do believe that one of the reasons for having harassed me and sentenced me in the way they have is to silence me and to make it difficult for me to act in the way that I do. Uh, I do not call myself an activist, but I call myself somebody who believes in citizen engagement as a responsible citizen of the country. And I think that that is an idea that they simply do not want uh, to, to prevail in Zimbabwe. They cannot afford to have increasing numbers of Zimbabweans thinking of themselves as uh, responsible citizens who need to be engaged. So I have to consider what my movements will be. Under ZANU-PF, there is nothing but misery, increased misery and decline for the people of Zimbabwe. Unless, of course, ZANU-PF can turn itself around. But I don't see that. We see them readmitting uh, uh, people with whom they had a serious rift. ZANU-PF always re-coalesces at times when it is under threat in order to ensure that the heavy boot that it has placed upon the people of Zimbabwe remains. Titi Dangaremba, thank you very much. Thank you, Kwangu. This has been The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. You can find Titi on Twitter at Efizeto and find her books at all good bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Kwango Diwewe. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, let us know on Twitter.
Thank you all for joining us.